Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Julia Palazzi, and co-hosted by Adrian. And joining us today is Mikhail Mack hailing from Minneapolis, Minnesota, working on peatlands in Northern Ontario. How are you, Mikhail? I'm doing all right. Good, how are you, Adrian? I'm doing great. Good, you guys excited to talk about methylmercury in peatlands? Yes, very much so. So what, I mean, for our listeners here, what is a peatland? Uh, a peatland is a type of wetland. Uh, and okay. it's a specific type of wetland that uh, ends up building up uh, peat uh, due to its uh, having a greater amount of precipitation than evapotranspiration or water leaving it. Okay. And whereabouts are these um, wetlands or the peatlands uh, located? Specifically, I study northern peatlands, which broadly speaking refer to Uh, any peatland north of uh, 45 degrees latitude and my specific research sites are in north central Ontario. Awesome. So now that we know generally what a peatland is, why don't you tell us about uh, your journey to London, Ontario and and how you got here? Uh, From Minnesota? From wherever you came from, I guess, (laughs) Minnesota? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, as I just alluded to, I am from Minnesota, and mm-hmm. I found myself in Ontario, which is not too different. Um, however, I I ended up coming to Western uh, through a series of connections and and jobs leading from my undergraduate institution, where I ended up working in a mercury lab, to the U.S. Forest Service, which I worked for after that and then ended up going back to the University of Minnesota to work in that Mercury Lab. And through that time, I, I became connected with uh, Dr. Brian Branferin, who is my current supervisor here at Western. And he recruited me, and I found myself in London, Ontario last spring. Awesome. That's so great. So uh, you were studying mercury, and now you're studying methylmercury, which is uh, an aquatic pollutant. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why it's so significant and uh, potentially, I- I've also heard it's it's quite dangerous. Yeah, I mean, over the past, I'd probably say well, at this point, 40 years, we, we've learned uh, that uh, methylmercury is extremely dangerous to, to humans and especially to developing fetuses and our nervous systems. And much of that came uh, through... Uh, sort of point source pollutions of of mercury. Um, I believe it's called Minamata disease, which uh, occurred in Minamata, Japan. And and that sort of brought scientists and public health officials to the issue of of mercury and and specifically methylmercury in the environment as a pollutant. And ever since then, uh, sort of how how mercury is transported throughout the global system, through ecosystems, um, t- 
turned into methylmercury in, in certain environmental conditions has all been of interest to, to researchers and to uh, public health institutions uh, across the world. That's, that's really interesting. So when we're talking about methylmercury and peatlands, how does it get there? How is it formed in the peatlands? Because your research is about how it's, it's maybe forming here and then moving other places. Right, so I kind of pick up on, if you, if you want to think about it, there is like a global mercury cycle, and I, and I pick up at where it uh, is, is uh, where, where mercury is, has been deposited in an ecosystem, uh, for which, is, where, which mercury is deposited across all ecosystems in the world. However, it happens to fall onto a peatland which has certain conditions which, which allow mercury the elemental form to be converted into methylmercury uh, by a microbial process and that is why it's why peatlands are of such interest is because they have this sort of special soil special soil conditions which allow uh, these microbes to thrive and and to uh, unfortunately uh, produce methylmercury as part of their uh, life cycles cool so these special soil conditions now, I have a very close friend also researching methylmercury in peatlands, and word on the street is that there is this, you know, very, very beautiful but tragic combination of things that result in methylmercury production and transport. Can you walk your listeners through what those special soil conditions are? Uh, first off, you need to have a anoxic or oxygen-free environment. Okay. And this develops in peatlands uh, due to the fact that they're, they're very waterlogged soils. Okay. And, and tightly compacted, the, there's not much pore space, so oxygen gets depleted very quickly. And what you develop here is a system or an environment which allows uh, anaerobic bacteria and microbes to, to thrive. And one of those types of microbes are known as sulfate reducers, sulfate reducing bacteria. Okay. And as a side reaction of their metabolisms, they end up uh, methylating or adding a methyl group to uh, mercury that happens to be, again, as I described earlier, free or like basically has been deposited from the atmosphere, the outside environment into this ecosystem. And, and hence they... Uh, produce methylmercury there. Okay, so we need waterlogged soils, sulfate-reducing bacteria, and uh, well, with that obviously source? sulfate. Sulfate. Okay. And is there a special temperature at which this happens? Like you're you're talking at, uh, about a very specific area in Canada, which is I assume is is a little bit more um, is a little colder because it's further north. Um, is there an ideal temperature at, with the, at which this is happening, or is temperature affected at all? Temperature certainly has an effect. Uh, ideal temperatures, I mean, you can look into the literature. It's much like a lot of other bacteria that, that you culture. If you're, you know, between 20 and, and 30 degrees uh, centigrade, you're, you're in kind of the butter zone of, of their metabolisms. But realistically speaking, in northern peatlands in Ontario, you rarely get to those, you know, soil conditions of 20 degrees or more. So 
as it stands now, I would say temperature is is not all that important. However, if we're if we're sort of gazing into the future with uh, sort of one aspect of my my research concerning climate change, temperature will of course become an important consideration to to this type of uh, uh, environmental issue. So, if these back or microbes are, are making the methylmercury and optimally they like to be a little warmer, they would be presumably making more methylmercury with climate change as, as the globe warms, we're, uh, we're going to get more methylmercury production. Possibly, assuming, Possibly. <laughs> assuming no other aspects that affect the production change. So will there be enough... Um, carbon type things for those microbes to eat will there be enough sulfate available for them to metabolize all things that can be limiting but yes if, if you were to simply increase temperature studies have typically shown that the methylation rates of mercury do increase it's oh, very interesting it sounds yeah. like it's kind of a complicated it, it's a very um um, multi-dimensional complex. Yeah, complex it's nuanced there's definitely <laughs> no there's no easy like direct relationship that you that you find in these systems because it's so there's so many factors that that can affect uh, sort of the end product of, of mercury in going into the environment so I'm just reading your abstract here and uh, I'm wondering if you could speak to the BRACE project that you're on. That sounds really cool. Can you walk us through what BRACE is? It sounds like a field-based climate change experiment. Yeah, so BRACE stands for Biological Response to a Changing Environment. Very nifty. Uh, that, that would be the acronym's meaning. And I, I am lucky enough to have a supervisor that... Uh, has been awarded grant money to to study the effects of climate change in in northern peatlands and we have a a site uh just outside of white river ontario is that the home of winnie the pooh <laughs> it just so happens to be the home of winnie the pooh well uh for anyone who doesn't <laughs> know white river by the fact that it's the home of winnie the pooh it's also uh three hours north of sault ste marie and uh, our actual field site is, is kind of northeast of, of Lake Superior. And the, the BRACE project is a, a field experiment in which we have uh, sectioned off little, little chunks of a peatland, okay. uh, 32 of them in fact. Mm. And we are going to be increasing the ground temperature and adding CO2 uh, with the end, with the overall effect of trying to simulate a future climate, and then asking many research questions about how these ecosystems will will be affected by warmer temperatures and more CO two. Awesome. So I know this might be a little premature, as you're still kind of, you know, collecting data for your project. But what are your predictions um, for? methylmercury production and transport under these climate change conditions uh, in BRACE? Well, for the BRACE project, uh, the mercury side of it, which (laughs) 
the Mercury side of the project is confined to mostly a production question. Oh, okay. And what we're really expecting is is maybe a, a short-term spike in methylation and then long-term another factor such as a lack of sulfate or not the right sort of sugars for these microbes will be around and it'll in fact limit uh, the overall production. However, maybe there, there will be a, a temporary um, increase in, in methylmercury production. Awesome. What those time frames are, anyone's guess at this point. Cool. So what, um, can you walk us through a little bit of the other part of your project involving, I think you said, connectivity between uh, the water surface and soil substrate or maybe just in peatlands in general? Are, Are all peatlands the same in terms of their connectivity? Uh. No. I know that was a loaded question, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's a three-parter. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the last question there. All peatlands are not the same in terms of their connection, and and in this case we're talking about a a water connection, as in does water in this wetland, this peatland, eventually find itself in in local streams, rivers, lakes, Um, and that is not typically the case with peatlands. In fact, much of, of peatland research, and if you look at sort of peatland water research uh, or peatland hydrology, has, has sort of like famously decreed the fact that, you know, peatlands are disconnected from the local water table. They have perched water oh, okay. tables. They don't, you know, end up affecting downstream environments or being very much connected to them. However, that's, that's not always the case. And in fact, with specific types of peatlands, uh, mostly or I shouldn't say mostly, but uh, for example, a intermediate fen. Uh, a fen is a type of peatland, and the intermediate um, sort of categorization refers to the fact that it has uh, groundwater and, and other uh, nutrient in- inputs into it that um, other peatlands do not have. Okay. It's sort of an intermediate. When you say intermediate, you exactly. mean between a peatland and maybe the other water... Um, the streams leading into the rivers and lakes, is that? Uh, the best way to describe it is there are three different types of fens. Mm-hmm. Poor fens, intermediate fens, and rich fens. And those those distinctions all refer to yes, nutrient levels. Uh, and, and with that, the nutrients are typically either coming from uh, groundwater sources or from upland runoff or drainage type connections. Oh, so like, if you could imagine a peatland is really typically not um, in a way separate from the rest of the, the hydrological cycle. And in fact, like the textbook definition of a bog is that it's only precipitation fed. Mm-hmm. So then you have these other types of peatlands known as fens that have other inputs besides precipitation going into them. Okay, interesting. And you further categorize them poor, rich, and intermediate. Okay, so would the ones with the runoff, would that be a really rich environment? Because there's lots of, uh, maybe it's like fertilizer runoff or... That's definitely site-specific, but the 
in a way you can also tie these categorizations to the, the overall development of a peatland. So again, kind of a, a little bit of a, a textbook trajectory here is a, a peatland will first develop as a rich fen. You know, basically the peat is, is young and it's not very thick. And then over time as it builds up, not only it, it transitions into the intermediate fen, and as, as it continues to develop over time, it, it turns into a poor fen and then eventually a bog. And through that, you're, you're basically building up more peat and also disconnecting this ecosystem from what was the original water table of, oh. of this location. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So I just had a question. So mercury, uh, I think you mentioned, is deposited from coal combustion. Is that right? Or anthropogenic activity? One, one of the main sources historically has been coal. Okay. Uh, more recently, uh, something known as artisanal gold mining has, oh been my the, gosh. has been the main source of mercury into the, into the atmosphere and sort of... Artisanal? What, that sounds so... Hipster. Hipster. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Adrian. It, it wow. is unfortunately... I, you know what's funny is I first read that too and I felt like it was very, you know, like artisanal bread making or something. Yeah. But it, it's, it's actually uh, people... Uh, typically in developing countries that are just trying to scratch out, make a, make a living. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and what they end up doing is that, you know, the, the typical panning for gold and, and streams, they, they do that. And then to uh, amalgamate the gold from their sediment that they've sifted through, they use pure liquid mercury Oh my god! Which, wow. which, which <laughs> they could like it. buy at like the local village store. Oh my gosh! And then, worse yet, is to once you've sort of like swirled your mercury in your sediment, you then burn it off. Oh, you know, sorry. with just like a blowtorch, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're left with what what gold you've collected. Oh man! There's obviously a local issue here, which is like you have lots of of instances of like. Mercury poisoning and direct mercury poisoning of like these artisanal gold miners, and then of course the global effect of all this direct discharge of mercury into the atmosphere and then being deposited across the planet. Okay, so I guess where I was going with that kind of question was does mercury have a half life? You know, so assuming that coal combustion is the source and we stop coal combustion, you know, how long will mercury be present in the peat for methyl methylation to occur? Will it be there forever because peat is this kind of, you know, locked soil because it's waterlogged or does it flush away? Does it degrade over time? Well, most of the mercury in these ecosystems are actually bound to the soil itself. Oh, and then depending okay. on conditions, they can either remain bounded up or can be released um, and then can become more active in, the, in sort of the, the methylation cycle of mercury. Okay. And, and many factors affect that, you know, the pH, the, the type of peat you have, the temperature, and, and, and other factors as well, and, and even the type of mercury that's been deposited. So. Awesome. I'm coming from more of a plant-based perspective have there been any correlations or 
associations with, with types of plants and methylmercury production or transport? Mm, not directly. Okay. So clearly there's your PhD project <laughs> set out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I need to Maybe. learn more of the plant names. Oh, okay. Okay. So what do you... What do you hope to to contribute with this this methylmercury peatland research? Just more data, or kind of saving the world all in one shot, or what's what do you what do you hope at the end of this? I think personally, I hope that I've I've experienced and and, and found myself uh, better trained in in a science field that I'm interested in, which I'd broadly describe as uh, hydrology, wetlands, um, groundwater, surface water interactions. And then also, obviously more broadly, I hope that my research is of value to, to, the, to the public. Yeah. And, you know, it is a, an issue that is that is very present in in Ontario, with given the number of lakes, wetlands, streams, rivers, recreational fishers, uh, like fish- in southern Ontario, like in London, or like are we hit by this here, or just I feel like no, this is probably more of a northern northern issue. Yeah, I would say in general. Okay, but of course there are say bogs in in london here the sifton bog exactly does exist i don't know how well it is connected to say the thames river but (laughs) the thames i believe i'm not sure i'm not a londonite myself but i've been corrected maybe three times before so the thames the thames thames river thames there it is adrian knows sorry i'm used to the mississippi the mississippi okay (laughs) <laughs> good stuff good <laughs> America it's a good it's a good river it's a good river <laughs> cool well I think that's about all the time we have any uh, closing remarks Mr. Mac or Adrian I'm glad you guys uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, talk about my research it, it was uh, it was nice it's been an absolute pleasure alright well this is Gradcast and thank you for tuning in That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.